there's a lot of like woo woo stuff in our world, but nothing is more woo woo than a seed that can look like a pebble. Food is something that every individual's empowered to do for themselves every day before they're sick. It was the day I rode my bike that I was like, wow, how much recovery might be possible? We are on a mission to inspire, heal, and bring the world closer together. Welcome to Commune. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, today on the show, we are exploring the healing power of food. And we'll hear from numerous experts, including Dr. William Lee, Doug Evans, and Dr. Terry Walls, who are challenging traditional medical practices and embracing the potential of nutrition as a complementary approach to achieving health. So without going too deeply into the nuances of the translation, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, said something like, let food be thy medicine and medicine be thy food. Well, what if your medicine is a regimen of ultra-processed Doritos and Coca-Cola and cookies, Oreos, Big Macs and French fries and refined sugars and starches and grains, otherwise known as the SAD, Standard American Diet. Well, food contains macro and micronutrients that the body metabolizes and leverages for its myriad functions. But food is also a messenger like a conductor of an orchestra, your body being, in in this case, the orchestra. Now, certain constituents of food give signals to cells to act in certain ways, like a conductor uses a score to signal to performers how fast or slow to play, how loud or soft, and what the character and tension in a piece of music should be. But what if the musicians were given scores in the wrong key? Or what if the conductor directed them to perform at such speed and volume that the cellist bows became projectiles flying across the stage and knocking out the forlorn trombonists while the flutists started passing out? Well, to describe it as chaos would be an understatement. The physiological equivalent of such chaos is disease. Your cells are like those specialized musicians, each one of them performing their specific task. And for the orchestra to be harmonious, they each have to play their respective parts. The standard American diet contains industrial poisons mislabeled as food. So what instructions are they delivering our cells? And in contrast, what messages do our cells get from real whole foods? Dr. Terry Walls, our first guest, shares her story of resilience and the transformative power of nutrition in the first segment of today's episode. What I'd like to do, Jeff, is to begin with telling people my story um, uh, of how I became ill and how my life was transformed. So, you know, before entering medical school, I'm an athlete. I uh, compete in full contact taekwondo. I'm a kick em up kind of girl. Uh, bronze medalist in the Pan American Trials. Enter medical school. Do well. 
but during medical school, I started having electrical uh, discomforts, uh, 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 face pains. About 20 years later, I developed weakness in my left leg. And my neurologist uh, tells me that I have multiple sclerosis. I see the best people. I take the newest drugs. And still, within three years, I'm in a tilt-recline wheelchair. Um, my neurologist mentions uh, the work of Lauren Cardain. I, after having been a vegetarian for many years, uh, read his works, uh, his books, uh, and decide to go back to eating meat. Very big deal. I continue to decline. Um, I uh, decide to start reading the basic science and develop a theory that mitochondria are what's driving disability in the setting of MS. And so I begin taking supplements that slow my decline. I'm very grateful, but I'm still declining. My face pains are getting uh, much, much worse. Uh, and to think about that, that's like a, a cattle prod, electrical ca cattle prod that hits me right here, a jolt of this intense electrical pain for just a second. It's more, they're turned on more frequently. They're more difficult to turn off. Uh, and by the summer of 2007, I can walk very short distances with two walking sticks. Otherwise, I'm in a tilt recline wheelchair. I can't sit up anymore. Um, I am beginning to have some brain fog. My face pain is more frequent, more severe. It's clear to me I'm destined to become likely bedridden, likely demented, quite possibly having to um, endure the trigeminal neuralgia permanently on. And when it's on, a breeze triggers the pain, light triggers the pain, sound triggers the pain, talking, swallowing, speaking triggers the pain. I have a very grim future, 2007. Uh, and that's when I have the, and I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take the course in neuroprotection. I have a longer list of supplements, which I add. And um, I discover electrical stimulation of muscles. I add that to my physical therapy. And then I had this really big aha. And actually, I'm quite embarrassed now. It took me this long to have this aha. It's like, what if I redesigned my paleo diet based on the science that I've been studying, my mitochondrial nutrients? And so that takes me several more months. I, I get my diet redesigned. And I eat this new way starting uh, December 26, 2007. By the end of January, so four weeks later, my pain is definitely less. My brain fog is less. And beginning of February, my physical therapist says, Terry, you're getting stronger. And he has me, he advances my little simple mat exercises, and he has me to start lifting weights. Now, mind you, Jeff, these are little tiny weights, but, you know, I, I'm, I'm moving along, and I, be, I can sit up. I can have supper with my family at the table. That's a big deal. And then, and I used to ride my bike with my family a lot, so I asked uh, my wife, you know, do you think I could try riding the bike again? It says, well, maybe in the fall, things keep going well. Well, two weeks later, you know, it's Mother's Day, and I decide I want to try riding my bike. So we have to have this emergency family meeting. My teenage children don't want me to ride the bike because they're afraid you know, I'll fall and get hurt. But Jack decides that I can try. So she tells my, my big six-foot-five, 16-year-old son to jog alongside on the left, my daughter to jog alongside on the right, and she'll follow. And I push off. 
and I bike around the block. My 60-year-old son is crying. My daughter's crying. My wife's crying, and I'm crying. And when I tell that story, I still cry because that is when I, my understanding of disease and health has changed. That is when I understand that the current understanding of secondary progressive multiple sclerosis is incomplete. And who knew how much recovery might be possible? And so I, I kept riding my bike a little bit more every day, doing my little workouts. And in October, I rode 18.5 miles. And once again, my family's crying, my wife's crying, and I'm crying when I cross that finish line. And you know that fundamentally changed how I approached uh, care in my in my clinics. It would change the focus of my research, and it would change the mission of my life. So, Dr. Walls, a physician, a former athlete, and a wife and a mother, was faced with a diagnosis that threatened to rob her of mobility and of quality of life. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis a debilitating disease of the central nervous system that put Terry in a recumbent wheelchair. But Dr. Walls refused to give up hope. In this next segment, she shares how she went from taking toxic drugs to experimenting with food and supplements, focusing on understanding the role of mitochondria and the nutrients needed for healthy brain cells, neurons, and myelin production, eventually developing a list of essential nutrients and specific foods to support her recovery and the recovery of so many others. She has since developed that program into a radical new way to treat chronic autoimmune conditions called the WALS protocol. So here's Dr. Terry Walls, as she fills us in on the rest of the story that led her from four years in a tilt-recline wheelchair to riding 18 and a half miles in the saddle of a bike. Yeah, it's amazing. It's almost like you put yourself through an autodidactic medical school halfway through your career. <laughs> yes, you know, I, I laugh. That is, you know, getting my MS diagnosis was, you know, my second uh, medical school. Um, so, you know, medical school is hard, learned a lot. Uh, it's a lot of fun, uh, very intense. And then when I got diagnosed with MS, I learned what it was like to be a patient. That was very humbling. And then I had to go back to basic science to learn all that I could to try and figure out how to... And when I first did all this, Jeff... I did this intense um, reading, self-experimentation, not to get better because, you know, I was seeing the best people in the country. They had told me very consistently that with secondary progressive MS, it's a progressive disease. There is no recovery. Functions once lost are gone forever. So I was taking these incredibly toxic drugs to slow my decline because I knew recovery wasn't possible. And so as I was tinkering, you know, with my self-care and doing my intensive physical therapy, my electrical stimulation of muscles, and I'm redesigning my diet, I was doing this to slow my decline. 
I had zero expectation of recovery. In fact, as I was getting better and you know, beginning to walk again, um, I, I want to remind people that anyone with a progressive, particularly a progressive neurologic disorder, part of the adaptation is that you finally let go of the future. You finally come to acceptance, like, okay, I will cope by just taking each day as it unfolds. So I was still in the taking each day as it unfolded, you know, thrilled that I could walk a little bit again, thrilled I could walk around the block again, but, it, but I didn't know what it meant. It was the day I rode my bike that I was like, wow, how much recovery might be possible? That must have been just a huge inflection point in, uh, in, in your journey. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it, I talk about that day. Yeah. You know, the way that you were able to study kind of other um, cognitive uh, or neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, did that give you any kind of window into developing your protocols? Were there any clues there in the clinical studies that were going on around, you know, some of these? You know, when I first started uh, going to the basic science, at first I was looking for drug studies. Then I finally had this big aha, like, well, I, I'm not going to get access to these drugs. I should start looking for things I could access. So that got me down supplement studies. I, and so I was looking at MS supplement studies, I, and then I thought, well, but you know, I don't have relapses anymore. This is all just progressive disease, so I should be looking for. And nobody studied nobody studies progressive MS because it, it, people don't get better. So they they study relapse remitting MS. So that's like you know, I, I got to go to other progressive disorders. So that's when I went to Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, um, uh, the dementias, Huntington's, ALS. I, and as I was reading, I thought, okay, mitochondria were the, seemed to be the common thread for all of those diseases. Uh, then I got into like, okay, so what do mitochondria need? Um, what do we know about them? Uh, how can I uh, better support that? You know, I, I did not come easily great. to this, Jeff. I did not no, come easily you, to this. But you, you know, you you did what a scientist really does, which is ask humble questions, right? And pull threads. And, and you just kept and, and, going yeah. and looking. And then, you know, um, you know, and I had a little, my, my first little supplement cocktail, I added them. And you know, after about six months, I thought, ah, nothing's happening. And so I quit them. Because yeah, I, um, I was so annoyed. And then, you know, 24 hours later, I just could not get up out of bed. And uh, on the third day, uh, Jackie came in and said, you know, honey, I think I ought to try your supplements again. So I, so I took them. And the next morning, I could get up and go to work. Now, I, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. So two weeks later, I did the same experiment. I stopped my little mitochondrial cocktail. You know, 24 hours later, I just really could not get out of bed. I waited three days, and I resumed my supplements. And then I was 
so jazzed. Um, I was very excited uh, to be reading the basic science. I told my institutional review board, uh, and, as on, and this is the committee that reviews research at the University of Iowa. I said, you know, give me all of the studies that uh, have to do with the brain. Uh, and so I get progressively more comfortable with reading uh, brain science uh, and more comfortable with uh, thinking more that, you know, there are things I can do. There are things that I can do. So let's just talk specifically about MS. Now, you mentioned briefly um, before, it's essentially the immune system attacks these nerve fibers and the, the myelin sheathing, I think it's called, uh, which is kind of a fatty substance. I've always heard it kind of, um, there's a metaphor there with a, with a wire, like an electrical wire that's insulated. And um, can, can you talk a little bit about kind of specifically the mechanism of, of multiple sclerosis. And then, you know, as you began to uh, identify this degradation of myelin as one of the key issues, how you then um, developed a protocol to or an understanding of what are the building blocks of myelin. You know, you were just doing this very, it, it sounds like it just makes total sense, but you were just dissecting the issue and just putting one foot in front of the other. <laughs> you know, I, I suppose you know, it begins with the supplements that I'm, I'm uh, zeroed in on mitochondria, that I, I start uh, having a deeper understanding of what are the uh, nutrients that mitochondria need. Uh, and then uh, coming back to myelin and understanding myelin uh, uh, we, we presently think the immune cells are attacking the myelin, and it's sort of a spotty um, uh, lesions appear uh, in the spinal cord, in the brain, uh, and so it's not all myelin that's destroyed, but it, it destroys myelin in particular, at a spot, you might have one spot or two spots or four spots or 20 spots. Uh, and so the, the current understanding is that we will give you a drug that interferes with your immune cells function in some capacity, either blunting them all globally or blunting a particular uh, step. No one has had the approach of, well, what, what do we need to make myelin? Uh, so I, I began to think about that. Well, uh, what what do we know? What what are the scientists saying that we need for brain cells? What are the scientists saying that we need for uh, making myelin? Uh, and so th there were a few review papers that talked about uh, some of these nutrients with vitamins and minerals, uh, essential fats, that uh, basically is about making sure you have plenty of great nutrition. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's embarrassing to go back and look at, you know, what did I learn in medical school about nutrition? Low-fat diet, avoid cholesterol, use margarine instead of butter. And that was sort of like all that I really uh, remember from my nutrition uh, that I got uh, in medical school. 
Uh, and then during residency, did I get any nutrition? Again, it was avoid cholesterol, use margarine, avoid uh, uh, butter, avoid eggs. Uh, and so I had followed a, you know, a very low-fat diet, um, um, legumes, rice, uh, vegetables. Uh, so it certainly looked like a very heart-healthy diet. As I you know, got more curious that mitochondria were the solution uh, and what do brain cells need, then uh, fat, because myelin is fat, and cell membranes are the fatty parts of the cell membrane that are wrapped again and again and again to make the myelin. And that's like, okay, uh, that turns out to need cholesterol, omega-3 fats, um, uh, so icosapetanoic acid, the cosaxanoic acid, uh, that's in uh, cold water fish, uh, grass-fed, grass-finished meats. Omega-6 fats, uh, those are in nuts and seeds. Uh, 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 flax oil, hemp oil uh, would be uh, good sources of those as well. Uh, because you and I, we, we lack the molecular uh, machinery to make the omega-3 bond or the omega-6 bond. And those fats are essential for our cell membrane. Uh, they're essential for some of our neurotransmitters. Um, so you have to eat those. We also need to have cholesterol. While we can make cholesterol, if you're on a very, very low-fat diet, sometimes your uh, blood cholesterol levels are so low, you, you can't make enough sex hormones, cortisol hormones, and you're having difficulty having enough cholesterol for your uh, cell membranes as well. So uh, a very low-fat diet can get you into trouble that way. Yeah. What was the standard of care um, at the point where you know you were doing some of this research? What was the typical standard of care? So the standard of care would, would be um, to take a disease-modifying drug. And in the, two, in the 2000, when I was diagnosed, that would have been one of the interferons, such as um, Avonex or Betaseron or a decoy protein, uh, uh, Colpaxone. Uh, and then if you, at the point that you converted to the progressive phase of the illness, then you take a form of chemotherapy called mitoxantrum, uh, which, by the way, gives you a 2% chance of converting to uh, leukemia each time you take it, uh, plus it's toxic uh, to your heart, so it increases the probability of heart failure. Uh, uh, and, um, so it's, it's certainly a very, very toxic drug. Uh, and there, there's a, um, a limit to how many total doses that you can get uh, in your lifetime. Uh, so that was the next thing that I took. There was zero emphasis on diet. You're basically told, you know, eat what you want, enjoy your life. It doesn't really matter. Uh, uh, fortunately, my physicians uh, did check for B vitamin, uh, uh, B12, and not everyone knows to check for B12. Uh, and they did suggest that since I'd been a vegetarian, to take uh, a B12 supplement, uh, which I uh, did do. Uh, although I, I will give my neurologist credit, they were the one who introduced me to the work of Lauren Cordain uh, and uh, did mention uh, the work of Ashton Embry. So reading uh, their two papers, 
in their books. And that led me to the decision to, and it was a big decision at the time, to abandon uh, the uh, vegetarian, low-fat vegetarian diet and uh, go back to eating meat. So let's dive a little bit deeper into your particular signature on the paleo diet. And maybe you could address the paleo diet kind of at a high level. And then we can kind of go more granular in terms of what are the building blocks for things to synthesize myelin or neurotransmitters or what feeds mitobiogenesis, biogenesis, the, essentially the creation of new mitochondria? So uh, the paleo diet uh, is trying to help you take what's available in your grocery store now, wherever that is, uh, uh, into reconstructed diet that looks more like what our ancestors would have eaten. So on a really high level, uh, the protein source is meat, poultry, fish, eggs, if you tolerate them. Uh, and then um, you're not having grains or added sugars, but you are having uh, a lot of vegetables. It might be tubers. Uh, uh, so yeah, it could be potatoes, yams, squashes, uh, uh, cabbages, onions, mushrooms, uh, berries, uh, and fruit. Uh, and uh, that's, that's what you're having. Uh, and it's not that we're importing food foods from a different continent or across the continents. You're getting foods, ideally, that are in season uh, and locally available. Uh, and so if you're in Canada, you're eating a slightly different set of food than if you're in Florida or you're in Africa or Australia. Because I want you to eat you know, the protein sources and vegetables and fruits that are native to your area. The um, uh, paleo folks really focused on what to avoid, which was uh, grains, sugars, processed foods. They didn't put a whole lot of guidance into what to eat. When I had my recovery, it's because I put a lot of guidance into like, okay, what do I have to eat to get everything to work? Uh, and originally, it was based on uh, the uh, list of uh, 18 different nutrients, and actually, it's now 34 that I track uh, that I want to be sure everyone has. And I had long list of foodstuffs that I knew I needed to eat every week. Well, when I started teaching my vets that, I realized I couldn't possibly give them a list. That's just not teachable. It's not implementable. So then I had to go back to thinking like, okay, I need to have something that people could, I could teach in just a couple minutes that people could remember and you could use to guide you to mostly get those 34 things that I, I want you to have. And that's where I came up with um, 6 to 12 ounces of, of protein. And that's two palm-sized servings uh, of meat, fish. And then I have um, a largely male clientele uh, at the VA. Uh, and so I, this was for tall women and men. So it's nine cups of uh, vegetables uh, and fruit. And Jeff, you'll, this will make you laugh. Mm -hmm. My vets would say, now, is that per week or month? And I'd say, no, no, no. <laughs> That's per day. And they go like, what? 
How is that possible? <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's like three cups of green leafy vegetables, three cups of cabbage, onion, mushroom family vegetables, three cups of deeply pigmented. And there's no need to make yourself over full. So I mean, if you're hungry, eat more vegetables and berries if you've already had your uh, 12, 12 ounces uh, of meat. If you are a petite lady, and we had some very petite people in my clinics and in my clinical trials. Um, so if you're you know, four foot 10 uh, lady, you're not gonna get nine cups of vegetables in. You're gonna get maybe six ounces of meat because your, your palms are much smaller than mine. And maybe it's gonna be four to five cups of vegetables, and that's fine. This is the starting point. This is not the ending point. This is where you start and you adapt. And if, if you're one of my gentlemen who you're doing construction work, you're doing a lot of heavy manual labor, then yes, you're gonna maybe need more protein and you'll maybe be having 15 servings, 15 cups of vegetables. One of the um, micronutrients that I've heard you mention that was really very new to me, not really particularly on my radar day to day, was sulfur kind of as the building blocks of neurotransmitters and also what feeds mitogenesis and and um, supports our mitochondria. And can you talk about where we can find sulfur in our food? You know, the um, sulfur vegetables, cabbage family, onion family, um, mushrooms uh, have uh, sulfur in them, uh, uh, particularly the cabbage family, well, and the onion family uh, as well. Uh, that will boost your ability to process, eliminate toxins. It will boost your brain's ability to make neurotransmitters, particularly the calming neurotransmitter, gamma aminobutyric acid. It will boost your cell's ability to make uh, glutathione, which is sort of the master antioxidant, uh, which is very protective for your mitochondria. Dr. Terry Wall's personal experience with illness fundamentally changed how she approached self-care and care in her clinical practice. She realized the power of food as medicine, and it completely changed the focus of her research. Her methods challenge conventional medicine and highlight just how powerful nutrition can be in treating neurological conditions like MS. Now, the more I learn about this, stories like Terry's, the more astonished I am at the way most people think about food. Now, everything we put in our mouth, every nutrient-dense morsel can be a healing elixir. And Terry's journey is just one chapter in a larger interconnected story. So our next guest, Dr. William Lee, has 25 years of experience in biotechnology and helped develop FDA-approved drugs and devices for cancer, for diabetes, and for vision loss. Dr. Lee believes that food is the missing tool in our healthcare system and that there is a path forward 
for the medical industry to improve its relationship with nutrition. Okay, so without further delay, here is Dr. Lee on the healing power of food. I, I spent 25 years involved with biotechnology. I'm still involved with it now. I helped to develop 41 FDA approved drugs and, and devices for cancer, complications of diabetes and vision loss. So I'm all about finding the new, better ways to treat a horrible disease, but it's the right person, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. Okay. Um, however, how I got involved with food as medicine is I realized that food was a missing tool in the toolbox, you know, and that while medicine can be delivered in the hospital or in the infusion clinic or the primary care setting in a doctor's office, in fact, health care is what is being done between visits to the hospital or between visits to the doctor's office. And, and food is something that we didn't have the right amount of information on. So since I helped to develop drugs, I actually started to study food in the same systems that we developed medicines on and was able, in fact, to be able to study food and drugs side by side to really, really take a look at food as medicine. And when I say that, you know, food as medicine is so useful for improving your microbiome, for improving your blood, your circulation, for, you know, helping to combat cancer, it is by no means a substitute for standard, best practice, state-of-the-art medical treatment. However, so it's not food versus medicine. What I'm saying is that food is something that every individual is empowered to do for themselves every day before they're sick, when they're sick, after they've recovered from sickness, whereas doctors and health systems have powerful ways, but limited ways to being able to influence the body itself, whereas food is much more powerful. And if you think about it sort of holistically, it's not food versus medicine. I know there's a temptation to say my kale is better than my chemo. That's not right. the point. The point is what about food and medicine? Uh, uh, there was an amazing study done looking at young, healthy kids who are getting a flu vaccine. Okay. Um, just normal, healthy kids in college getting a flu vaccine. And they found that if you get a flu vaccine, um, and by the way, flu vaccines are only about 40% effective in general. Uh, your immune spot, the response doesn't always kick up. Sometimes it's against the wrong uh, flu. But they actually um, gave half of the kids in this trial a, uh, a shake made with broccoli sprouts. Broccoli sprouts mm. contain a natural bioactive called uh, isothiocyanate sulforaphanes. These sulforaphanes activate your immune system with the health defense systems. And it, they found that actually when they looked at people who got the flu uh, vaccine plus uh, a a broccoli sprout shake that it improved when you look in their blood it improved their immune response for their natural killer cells by twenty two times. There's no medicine. There's no yeah. drug company that could actually ramp up your flu protection like that. So and when they actually did the diaries of the people they figured out they found those people who also had broccoli sprout shakes just had less symptoms and missed less school missed less class. So again, this is really a more it's taking science and putting it wherever it needs to be. And one of the areas that I'm really committed to is actually figuring how to apply it to food because food feeds our human cells and our microbiome as well. Yeah. Now as we make efforts to reform kind of the sick care system to a healthcare system. Do you see a future in which alongside writing scripts for an antibiotic, 
um, that you could write a script for broccoli sprouts? <laughs> and how well, do we you get know, there it, if you it, see it, that it, feature? It, it, it's, it's interesting. Right now, there is a um, movement. Uh, I'm part of several federal uh, initiatives to um, help reform our food system and connect it to our health system. Uh, and uh, prescription foods are actually a real idea. And, and you know who's driving it? Our insurance companies, because they're the ones who actually hemorrhage cash for right. chronic illnesses that aren't made better. And so there is actually an incentive now being um, provided by some insurance companies for people to actually, for doctors to write prescriptions for patients to eat and receive these prescriptions or write healthier foods. Now, you know, how this actually gets handled at, a, at scale across the country remains right. to be decided. But, you know, man, um, I do think that there is a very real future where um, the healthcare system leans directly into what we get in the grocery store and the farmer's market. And the education, by the way, this is something I'm really, really committed to. Any of the listeners who actually believe in this, like, please come to my website and send me a note and let me know that you're interested in this. Um, and anybody who's a change maker, I, want to, I, I would love to know how we can team up. I think what's absolutely critical is that we, um, we uh, update, uh, revise uh, the medical education system so that medical students, uh, as they're training, get the same knowledge that we spent the last hour and a half talking about. They need to know it. How come doctors don't know it? So I'd love to be able to be one of the um, uh, forces that actually helps to transform and update our medical education system. Yeah. How, how much nutrition education did you get when you were getting your MD? I, I can tell you, I, I went to a very good medical school and I had outstanding clinical training. I had one week of nutrition and, and yeah. most people laughed during the course because it was considered kind of like the, the course that you didn't really need to study for. And at the end of the day, the, it's the culture. At the end of the day, you're going to actually just write a consult for a nutritionist or a dietitian to come to deal with the patients anyway. It used to be like the, 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 the subject that nobody really took seriously. I will tell you now, Jeff, that the generation of medical students that are in schools right now, first year, second year, third year, finally fourth year of medical school, they're the ones who are actually going to change things. They care about this for themselves. The practicing doctor in their 60s out there have been doing this for you know uh, decades. Uh, you know, we can try to change your mind. But what we really need to do is get back to where the new blood is coming from and get these people to be armed so that they can actually help patients help themselves. That's what's going to make the biggest change in this country from a healthcare perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you. For, uh, and, and count me on the team for, for that kind of reform because, you know, certainly we need it. Um, so leave us today with, uh, with a couple of key foods or what are you cooking uh, around the house? Great question. So um, I'll tell you the things that I think about for my own immune system um, that based on the science that I know. Blueberries, which are easy and great for breakfast, ramp up the immune system. Uh, that's been shown by blood tests and young, healthy people and athletes. I and mean, it, it definitely works. And you don't need very much, even just like a, a cup a day uh, of blueberries, which, you know, if you cook down that cup, it's like almost nothing. Uh, if you just sat there and snacked on blueberries, it'd be very easy. Dried blueberries, fresh blueberries are fine. Um, kiwi is another 
breakfast food that actually is really easy. It's packed with vitamin C, good for the immune system. Most people don't realize that the kiwi is a wonderful source of fiber to feed your microbiome. One kiwi, eating one kiwi will, will improve your microbiome in 24 hours. Like that, that's a that's a payback that you know also tastes good. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I yeah. snack on nuts, tree nuts, walnuts, pecans, pistachios, um, uh, almonds. Uh, those also uh, feed the gut microbiome. I, I think about you know um, uh, I think about the microbiome a lot, which is why I was so excited to uh, come on board to talk about this with you. Um, nuts are not only a good source of protein; they have healthy fats, and they are a great source of fiber. Mushrooms. I love the taste of mushrooms. Um, mushrooms are a great source of soluble fiber, um, good for the microbiome. Beta D glucan is what it's called. Um, and that's, oh, by the way, it's also important to know, you know, we're beginning to figure out what these things are that are good. Um, uh, studies have been shown um, that uh, eating mushrooms. Uh, with that contain beta D glucan actually improve your immune system, starting your saliva and even in your um, mucus in your nose. That's good defense. You need frontline defense. You need that gate to be pretty strong uh, as well. So those are just a handful of foods. And of course, oh, by the way, so I talked about broccoli sprouts. Well, the grown up broccoli also can do the same thing. The reason I talk about broccoli sprouts is because this is the odd thing. These sulforaphanes, these healthy bioactives, yeah. Broccoli sprouts, which are three to four day old sprouts, you can get them, you know, like in the sprout section of the grocery store, which has become more powerful. Amazingly, they have 100 times more sulforaphanes than the grown up broccoli. 100 wow. times more. So, you know, you want to be, if you want to have scalable effect with the smallest amount of volume, some broccoli sprouts, you can sprinkle on a salad, you can put into a shake, cook with it, saute with it. Um, you know, um, what an amazing way yeah. to actually activate your. And I, you know, what I what I really think that is helpful that I really want to leave your listeners to with is that everything we've talked about when I've mentioned a food uh, is something that comes from a cultural tradition where people make these foods taste awesome, great. Yeah. So for me, I believe that food is one of the most intimate things in our lives. It tells us about our upbringing, our childhood. Everybody can smell something remember the smell of their mom's cooking growing up. It tells us about our family. It tells us about our community. It tells us about our culture. Everybody comes from somewhere today. And a lot of these traditional food cultures, we're already using these healthy foods. We're just rediscovering the science behind them. And because they can be cooked in tasty ways, food has to taste great. It can't be too expensive. It's got to be relatively convenient. And you can take, uh, you know, I write about 200 foods in my book, Eat to Beat Disease. You can find tasty, delicious recipes for these anywhere. And that's what I always tell people, love your food. Gotta love, it's gotta be tasty, you gotta love it. If you love your food and love your health at the same time, that's the one-two punch to actually live a long, healthy life. Imagine doctors prescribing food. Insurance companies recognizing the link between nutrition and health and adding courses on nutrition to medical school curricula. Now, these developments have the potential to influence our individual health as well as our economy. Now, the more I learn about nutrition, the more astonished I am by the way that most of us eat. There's a study that said that 58% of Americans report to eat 
every single meal alone. We eat in our cars quickly and mindlessly and in front of TVs or staring at our smartphones. It's actually heartbreaking because the whole process of procuring, preparing, and sharing food can, and I believe should, be a major part of how we spend our days, you know, and with our loved ones in community. So as Dr. Lee emphasizes, food is one of the most intimate things in our life. It connects us to our families and our communities, and many traditional cultures were already using food as medicine. We're now just rediscovering the science now. And as we know from the research, food and community are two of the biggest determinants of health and longevity. Okay, so our next segment addresses one of the ways to improve health via nutrition, and that is through sprouts. <laughs> That's right. I made these on my countertop. Our next guest is Doug Evans, health food entrepreneur, sprouter, and founder of Organic Avenue. Now, he shares with us the variety of health benefits associated with eating sprouts and shares how easy it actually is to grow your own. Take it from me. Even I can do it. So here's our final segment with the Sprout King, Doug Evans. What happens is the seed is the store of energy and life force. And it is, you know, the most nutritious food on the planet because it's it's so small and concentrated. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to take a turn. I'm very conscious now because I'm fully present with you on this. I'm taking a turn. Hmm. So there's um, like I look at sprouts as food. Originally, I looked at them as a garnish, but now I look at them as food, as vegetables. So sprouts are vegetables. I also look at sprouts as vitamins and minerals. And for your sophisticated mm. you know, um, listeners, not only are they um, vitamins and minerals, they're micronutrients, phytonutrients, polyphenols, bioflavonoids, um, prebiotic probiotics, they're all like in there and they're antioxidants. And what happens is that every benefit of the whole food plant-based diet actually exists within sprouts. So you're getting this, like one handful of sprouted garbanzo beans is 20 plus grams of protein, right? And antioxidants and soluble and insoluble fiber. And it's a whole food, like it's a constellation. Um, and and then the the last thing, then this is the the, like the blow your mind thing for me. The plant's mm -hmm. defense mechanisms are medicinal to humans. So what would protect the plant from predators like insects ends up being medicinal properties. So there's um, you know, precursors to the compound sulforaphane that exist in cruciferous mm -hmm. vegetables. And Dr. Jed Fahey, you know, devoted 20 years of his life to researching this because it was well known that there were some anti-cancer properties in um, cruciferous vegetables. 
right? Turns out broccoli had the most of these anti-cancer compounds. And so then it was like, which strain of broccoli? And that was the wrong question. The question turned out to which stage of broccoli? And turned out the seeds themselves had a finite dose of glucoraphanin and myrosinase in the seed, like microscopic level. But turns out in the seed level, because of the shell, this the, the, the shell, the testa around the seed, there were enzyme inhibitors on the, the shell that made it hard to assimilate and digest. So it turned out like day three of soaking, germinating the seed, and when it sprouts, made the most access to this glucoraphanin. And imagine there's like little water balloon, little modules inside, and there was the glucoraphanin, which is one compound, and then there's the myrosinase, which is the enzyme, these little water balloon bags. And when you chop it, chew it, crush it, they would mix. And that was the defense mechanism if an insect bit through um, to ward off the insect. And that ended up being the forming this very fast acting sulforaphane, which if any of your listeners um, just Google it, there's been more than 2,500 peer reviewed published papers of treating, not curing, but treating cancer patients, autism, Alzheimer's, diabetes. That's like this whole plethora of solutions, you know, that they're derived from these simple things as sprouts. That's just incredible. So there's so much, so many threads to pull out there. So essentially baked into the genetic code of seeds these tiny little seeds that if anyone's watching on YouTube, um, they're, you know. That's about 50,000 you know, seeds in that bag, by the way. In this bag. So baked into each one of those is the genetic information uh, that can manifest itself without sunlight and without soil. So pre-photosynthetic, because within those seeds there is, or within, um, the endosperm, I assume there is a certain amount of stored ATP or energy that allows that little tiny seed to sprout. And, right. and, and that we as humans co-evolved with these things such that when we actually consume them, it's adaptive for us. So they have things like you say, sulforaphane, which, um, is uh is anti-carcinogenic or you know icts uh you'll have to pronou- help me pronounce it isothiocyanate yeah. i think they are and glucosinolates yeah. um right which are things that i'm just learning about but they just have these tremendous properties chemoprotective properties um like you say antioxidant um properties anti-inflammatory properties essentially you know living in mod in modernity through the toxicity that we have, or just as a product of, of cellular respiration, we create these free radicals uh, in our bodies, in our mitochondria that have these unpaired electrons and that can be very, very um, detrimental to health. They can you know, create 
essentially oxidative stress. And through eating sprouts, we can actually mute or neuter that through their antioxidant properties, which is just ridiculously mind-blowing. Uh <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, there's even extensive research on detoxifying benzene from the lungs, mm. you know, through broccoli sprouts and sulforaphane. So, so this is something like what happened is that there were, you know, sprouts have been around, right, since the beginning of time. There have been a lot of a lot of leadership and a lot of people sprouting and talking about sprouting all through our lives, right? From, you know, I've gone to the Ann Wigmore Institute. I've gone, um, you know, I, I, I'm friends with Victoris Kovinskis. Like, you know, there was the sprout man out of the Berkshires um, that used to come to Organic Avenue. There were all these people that were sprouting. And I'm like, now I'm a little hippie right? But I'm more of a New York City, like, you know, traditional person. Like I, I wasn't born, like, I didn't even know my first vegetarian until I was in my 30s, right? So this was kind of very abstract. And it was, you know, John Robbins book, Diet for a New America, when I opened up and I read about the atrocities, you know, to cows, and I closed the book, and I put it on the shelf backwards so I wouldn't have to read the spine because it was haunting me what I read, but I didn't want to throw out the book. And I just did a, you know, a long um, class with, I was a, a speaker at the Food Revolution Network, you know, and, and John interviewed yep. me with Oceans. I love those guys. And full circle, like full circle. But it was the necessity for me to wanting to be able to maintain my integrity and and standards around food while living in a, a, a tent in a yurt in not only the Mojave Desert, but I was living in a food desert. The nearest Whole Foods was a three-hour round-trip um, journey. And I was like, there's no way. And to grow a garden in Topanga or in healthy conditions takes weeks or months or years to grow a garden. To grow a garden in the desert, you know, you might as well be uh, Matt Damon on Mars, right? It's really hard to grow food in the desert um, that, that's not native permaculture um, indigenous to, to the land. And that's where when I'm soaking in my hot springs, like looking at the Milky Way, seeing the twinkling of the stars and being hungry. Like I was hungry. I'm looking at the stars. There was nothing to do. And then I got like the download. It was like, boom, the stars were twinkling and I was seeing sprouts. And my mouth it was, it was a bit very Pavlovian reaction. And I was like, oh, really? You know, and I asked the question. I really didn't know the answer. I said, is it possible to live on sprouts? Like, could you get mm. all of your nutrition, the bulk of your nutrition, some of your nutrition from sprouts? And although I'd been eating sprouts for 25 years, I'd get sunflower sprouts at the Union Square Farmer's Market. I was eating mung bean sprouts 
is part of, you know, uh, Asian cuisine in various levels. Um, I had alfalfa sprouts on all my hippie, trippy salads. So I knew about sprouts and I ate sprouts and I felt like sprouts were like my, my people. I could eat the sprouts. I was down with sprouts. But here, the <laughs> yeah. next month became my deep dive into sprouts as necessity because I'm living on magic. I was living on magical land, right? A vortex with hot springs, sunrises, fresh water, geothermal activity, you know, under the land. Like I felt right. And I figured out how to desalinate water, but I didn't have a source of food. And then sprouts came to me as like woof. And then, you know, when I, when I, you know, I, I'd, I'd known Marianne Williamson for years. Um, Marianne um, invited me onto her podcast to talk about food justice and food equality. And that was, this whole other area of thinking about how sprouts were, were literally like food equality, food justice for all. Yes. <laughs> okay, I want to go there because th the socioeconomic attributes of sprouts is not something that a lot of people are talking about. But I, I want to go there. But before we do, I want to close the loop on some of the nutritional aspects, because I, I think it's so important to underscore the multidimensionality of sprouts. So we talked about sulforaphane and, IC, and ITCs, and then you mentioned fiber, protein, low glycemic load, low calorie, whole food, all of these properties, right? Yes. And then we didn't even really talk about all of the vitamins. So maybe just spend a couple minutes just give it, giving us kind of the global view on kind of the multidimensionality of the nutrition that we're talking about here in, in sprouts. And, so, and, and obviously it's going to depend on which sprout. But yeah. Right, right. Well, just think about this. I would you know, venture to say I'm not a gambling man. Right. But I would venture to say that most people listening to this have eaten lentils, right? Lentils are the staple of a staple of a plant-based diet around the world. Turns out that when you soak and sprout lentils, you double the antioxidant levels, you triple the vitamin C and you quadruple the soluble and insoluble fiber. So here we are taking something that is already well-known, nutritious, and there's all this other woo-woo stuff in those lentils when they're sprouting that's providing this life force that keeps them going because when you cook them, like you're still getting nutrients, you're still getting fiber, you're still getting antioxidants, but they're no longer growing. So there was something on a psychic level of consuming living food, enzymatically rich food that, that 
the, the science hasn't even begun to go there. Like our nutrition labels, like they're in the most provincial Flintstone level, you know, of, of yeah. communication. But I think let's just take a, take a moment to think about those sprouted lentils. Just think about that. And every color of the lentil, whether it's green or red or orange, that color is representing different antioxidants. So the orange is the mm. beta carotene. The green is the chlorophyll. The, the dark purple blue is the anthocyanidins. Like this is a world that has been largely ignored because we live in a convenience culture where we can go into a supermarket that can have tens of thousands of SKUs that have additives and preservatives and packaging and convenience all over them. And, you know, that like, and that's the world we live in. So sprouts were yeah. overlooked because you had to have some skin in the game. You had to put some effort. You had to add some water. You had to rinse them. You know, you had to, you know, wash the seeds. And so no one wanted to do that. Except now yeah. when everyone wants to do that. Except, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at big food, what they're good at is processing for preservation for shelf life so you know they're irradiating actually often seeds um yeah. so that they actually don't sprout right <laughs> um because what they're trying to do is actually maintain um shelf life in a package but what do you but what happens when you do that well you're sacrificing um all of the the micro and macronutrients that we're talking about. So, you know, a lot of people associate um, sprouts with like broccoli sprouts became quite famous, um, alfalfa sprouts, obviously. But what can be sprouted? What's the kind of multitude of seeds or legumes or even nuts that, yeah. that can be sprouted so people can kind of get a sense of the broad spectrum. Well, it, it's interesting. I would say all plants have to sprout in order to advance, <laughs> right? There That's are yeah. some, some beans, some legumes like kidney beans have high concentrations of trypsins and lectins, which could have a um, negative effect if they are not cooked. But I would sprout the, the kidney beans before um, I would cook them to unleash some of the growth levels. And now you're going to see much more sprouted items. But, you know, one of the things, you know, that you can get from sprouts, which is not very well known, is you can get your omega-3 medium chain fatty acids, right, from flax seeds and chia seeds. But when you sprout them, they become very bioavailable. They're very rich in ALA. That's why if you've seen any of my yeah. videos, I normally eat seaweed, you know, whether it's kombu or nori, because by eating the seaweed with the chia and flax, I'm getting the ALA 
EPA and DHA. And I'm getting it without mercury, without, you know, um, bad cholesterol or concentrated fats. Like you're getting these medium chain fatty acids in a very bioavailable, rich way. So if you were to say, what can you get out of sprouts? The only thing that you're not getting out of sprouts in the whole vitamin spectrum is vitamin B12. Like you're not getting vitamin B12 in sprouts right. at this time. They're, they're not there. Now, right. I so think, you just supplement with, with B-complex or B12, yeah, right? Yeah, B-complex, a sublingual, you know, very, but everything right. else, like every single amino acid to form every protein is in every sprout. I'm going to say that again, just because mm-hmm. it, it's, and I'll say it slower. Every amino acid to form every complete protein is in sprouts. Some have more of others, but that's where the variety fills in the constellation and you can get all of the protein you need from sprouts. So I wanna underscore that point, and I think it's a very important one to make because people still ask that question when someone becomes vegan or vegetarian. Well, where do you get your protein? That question is still being asked. And yes, we have to exogenously get our essential amino acids of which there are eight or nine. Um, So we need to eat those through our diet. And yes, they are bioavailable in meat products, but they are also bioavailable in plants. You can get all of those nine essential amino acids and your body miraculously makes the other 12 endogenously to then create all the proteins that your body needs, the enzymes, the hemoglobin, the the hormones, the muscles, everything your body needs from a protein perspective can be made through eating sprouts and plants. Is that right? <laughs> that 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 is I mean, I am, you know, proudly going to be 56 years old in two weeks. I've eaten exclusively um whole food plant-based, mostly raw for 23 years, over 23 years. And I have never met, I mean, I'm sure they exist, but I've never met anyone that was protein deficient. I met a lot of people that were constipated, right? I met a lot of people that were fiber deficient. I've met a lot of people with, you know, all sorts of diabetes, obesity, cancer, heart disease. But I think when people ask me the question, where do I get my protein? I ask them, where did you get that question? Like, I, did you study nutrition? Like, like, where did you get that question? Because I think that you're only asking that question because you've been programmed to ask that question. And no matter what I tell you, you've been programmed to say something else. So if we should talk about something else, unless you earnestly want <laughs> to be non-biased, open-minded, and see what it's like to, you know, live like a healthy um, herbivore in part. But I'll tell you this, Jeff, when I was running Organic Avenue, 
I was much more dogmatic and judging. And after yeah. a few Vipassana courses and some humbling events, <laughs> I'm now saying, people, do whatever you want. Like, I don't want to tell you what to do. I want to share my experiences and my knowledge. And my basic thing is not like become a Sproutarian and eat sprouts all the time as your only food source. What I want to say is you can do that, but add some sprouts to your meals, to your snacks, to your smoothies, to your juices, and get take advantage of this gift that nature has provided um, for everyone. And for, you know, we won't go into the full food equality, food justice, but for, for this case, it's just affordable. A handful of seeds are pennies a serving. Well, let's get into that. Because I think this is huge. This is a huge part of it because so often the wellness world has been cubbyholed uh, for the affluent. Um, and, you know, you have uh, whatever spa getaways for thousands of dollars a day, et cetera. But Sprouts provides a whole different story uh, uh, around the, the socioeconomic picture. So we often hear about food deserts. You live in a literal desert, but the food deserts are places that can be rural or can be urban, but essentially areas um, that only have accessibility to to processed foods. Correct. And um, fast food so, processed food. Exactly. So maybe you could spend a few minutes kind of unpacking the how cheap and available sprouts are to everyone, how democratizing they are to for health. Yeah. In bulk, you could buy a pound of organic sproutable lentils for under $3. And that will turn into one pound will turn into 10 pounds of nourishment. Like just, just think about the the the, yeah. the metrics or ten cups. You know, one cup equals ten cups. So, so the idea that that food being healthy, being plant based, is only you know part of you know societal culture of convenience and of profit. And you know, one of the things about sprouts is you know it's it's almost similar to IKEA. Right. If you want to buy custom made, high quality furniture, it's going to take, you know, weeks or months and cost a fortune. If you want to get, you know, a Swedish design, Swedish engineering, pick it up, put it together yourself, get some skin in the game, break a sweat, you can get really good stuff. And what I found, you know, interesting, you know, is some of the IKEA stuff is actually better engineered than some of the custom stuff because they've applied it. And when when it comes to um, food, you know, I lived always, you know, next to, you know, gourmet um, restaurants, gourmet vegan foods, Whole Foods, Air One, Lifetime. And that's what I thought was 
the cre- the, the the cream of the crop. That was the the best. When I realized the the food chain that produce grown in the field then goes to a warehouse, then goes to the the supermarket, and then goes out on the shelf, it could be a week, two weeks, three weeks old, you know, and the idea that I could have a fresh harvest, that my food was fresh, it wasn't coming from the field, it was there fresh, that I could get a fresh harvest every day, every meal, like I stopped buying vegetables. Like I start to grow my own vegetables and the, the, the thing is, I'm going to start doing this. And when we do our master class, we'll go into the economics of the meals. So the things that I buy, like I buy avocados, right? And they're anywhere from a dollar right. to $2 each. Um, sometimes I make my own fresh tahini, which I really love. It's just sesame seeds, right? And so I like fresh tahini. Um, sometimes I buy it in bulk. And it's really inexpensive in an eight-pound, you know, tub of organic tahini. And I buy my seaweeds, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, it turns out the things that I like, some of the most expensive things, and some are really inexpensive. I love making my own sauerkraut, right? And, you know, turns out cabbage is really inexpensive, right? So- yeah. So I like I'm a happy camper. Yeah. Well, no, I think our course needs to be sprouts and krauts because we, um, yeah, we uh, we ferment all here as well, and we have a big uh, right next to our sprouting kind of setup. We have our big um, our our sauerkraut brew um, happening and. Uh, I know, and so we'll get into some of the recipes maybe towards the end, but I know that you have some great combos there. But just to to kind of finish the loop back up on the, the socioeconomic side, and, and this really came from reading your book. I mean, this was a total eye-opener for me because I had started sprouting and, you know, Skylar, my wife, really led the charge on it. And, I you know, I was starting to experiment with different ways to eat it. And then I started to learn about some of the nutritional aspects of it, but I hadn't really thought through the these points, which is they're always in season. They yeah. address this food desert issue. They're space efficient, they're water efficient. They don't need soil or sunlight. They're, I think you know, I read in the book, they're under $2 per pound. They're always local and fresh. There's no carbon footprint. There's no picking or packing. I mean, you could just go on. Yeah, no packaging. The, the No packaging, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think, and just, just to be accurate, they're as low as $2 a pound, but like broccoli mm-hmm. seeds, which like a bag, you know, can be $20 or $25 a pound, but you only use two tablespoons at a time, you know, uh, of them. Right. So- And two tablespoons can equal six cups of broccoli sprouts. It's truly fascinating to consider that 2,000-year-old seeds recovered from the rubble of an ancient fortress like the date palm from Israel's Judean desert can still successfully germinate. 
And without sunlight and without soil, the intelligence of nature is just truly phenomenal. Just this year at the University of Geneva, botanists discovered the internal thermometer of seeds that delay or block germination if temperatures are too high for the future seedling. And consider lentils. When sprouted, they have higher antioxidant levels, triple that of vitamin C, and quadruple the fiber than in their grain form. And all that potential stored in something the size of a small pebble. Seeds are essentially concentrated sources of pre-photosynthetic energy and nutrients. Now, their sprouts contain phytonutrients, polyphenols, bioflavonoids, prebiotics, and so many beneficial compounds like sulfurophane, offering a variety of health benefits, including anti-carcinogen properties and treating conditions. Uh, with sprouts has become more and more accepted. Conditions like autism, Alzheimer's, and diabetes, they are rich in fiber, in protein. They have a low glycemic load, and they're super low in calories. But big food often processes seeds to extend shelf life, and this prevents sprouting, sacrificing that bound-up nutritional value and making it harder for the average consumer to access the healing power of seeds. So how devilishly ironic that the food we buy at the grocery store is itself so dead that it can't fulfill one of its main functions, producing life, right? So today we covered tremendous amount of ground. Uh, so I wanna leave you with a few key takeaways. And number one, food is the way we speak to our cells. The constituents of food give signals to cells to act in certain ways, which means food is perhaps the most powerful tool for creating health. But the average doctor has little to zero knowledge of the primordial role of food as medicine. We need a reform of medical education that includes significant nutrition curriculum. Prescription foods, are a real possibility. Can you imagine a world where your doctor could prescribe whole nutrient-dense foods and insurance would pay for it? Well, it is happening. Doctors like Robert Lustig are already on the trail with this. So we learned also about the miracle of sprouts. Now you can actually get all the protein, all the essential amino acids that you need from various sprouts, particularly bean sprouts. A pound of organic sprouted lentils for under $3 turns into 10 pounds of nutrition. And you can grow them on your kitchen counter without sunlight or soil. I hope you were inspired to action by the low cost, low investment way to flood your body with nutrition through the use and growth of sprouts. Can you imagine? what the orchestra of your body might sound like when it's in this kind of harmony. Okay, so if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe and hit the notification bell so you never miss an episode. And leave a comment to let us know your thoughts. And don't forget to share our content with others who might benefit from this valuable information. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. 
My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you.